Hello, everybody. I'm Eric Klein, and I am producing a podcast called Yiddish Book Club with Michael Wex, Shane Baker, and Faith Jones. We're going to read short stories and novels, and maybe someday even poems and plays, all uh, written in Yiddish, and then we're going to talk about them on the program. And you're invited to join us to read the same stories and to participate in our conversations. And if you're like me and you don't read Yiddish, for us, there's English translations. Um, so we're going to start. The very first story we're going to read together is the Isaac Bashevis Singer short story, Yentl the Yeshiva Boy. I have my copy in English in I.B. Singer's The Collected Stories. Meanwhile, my Yiddish-speaking friends are working on tracking down their copy to read in the original Yiddish. As I record this, the best way for you to participate in Yiddish Book Club is on Facebook, Yiddish Book Club, or on Twitter, Yiddish Book Club. Send us an email at, uh, send the email to yiddishbookclub at gmail.com. And the website is, you guessed it, yiddishbookclub.com. So sometime after December 2015, we'll be up on iTunes, depending on when you're listening to this in the time stream. Um, you can subscribe to Yiddish Book Club podcast there uh, in the in the very near future. Meanwhile, find yourself a copy of I.B. Singer's short story, Yentl the Yeshiva Boy. That's Isaac Bashevis Singer. Don't be confused by his other famous novelist brother, uh, I.B. Singer. Yentl the Yeshiva Boy. Read it. Get your friend or your family member of choice to read it with you. Join the club. We'll do it together. Uh, this thing that you're listening to now that I'm introducing is uh, the second practice podcast, uh, a pre-production conversation, a recording in which we chat a little and we plan a little, and I'm posting it in public uh, for reasons which I'll explain in a moment. Uh, on the recording are Michael Wex, Shane Baker, and myself. There's also an earlier conversation on another uh, re- recording with Michael Wex and Faith Jones. That's also up on the Yiddish Book Club uh, dot com. If you want to listen to it, the post is called First Conversation. It's not going to be the first episode of the podcast if you're looking for it on iTunes. It's not going into the feed. It's just a behind-the-scenes peek at what we're up to. So yeah, stay tuned for that first episode of the podcast. Uh, you should expect it sometime in uh, December of 2015. Meanwhile, if the idea of eavesdropping on Yiddish translators, talking shop floats your boat as it does mine, then please enjoy this informal recording. It begins with Michael Wex asking Shane Baker about the production of Death of a Salesman in Yiddish, which at the time of the recording, uh, which was November 7, 2015, Shane is deep in the midst of uh, performing in this play as an actor in an off-Broadway, all-Yiddish production of Death of a Salesman. So that's where we begin, and then we meander our way uh, all around toward towards no firm conclusion. So again, if if you're here for the podcast, this isn't it. But if you like the idea of listening to Shane and Michael uh, talk Yiddish, this is your jam. Yeah, so how's the play going, Shane? Uh... What I can say, recorded or otherwise, is that it's a very good production. It's, and I don't like the play. That is the script. I never liked Death of a Salesman. I was never interested in it. I've never seen it on stage before, but I have seen the Dustin Hoffman. The Dustin Hoffman. That, the yeah, that's the only one I've seen. Okay, that, that's the only the one. The Lee J. Cobbs. Uh, I keep wanting to say Lou Jacobs, who was a clown for Ringling Brothers. Lee J. Cobb. And uh, uh, 
Frederick March, the movie. Uh, I've seen all of those, and I didn't care a whit for any of them. And this, I think, is a very good production of it. Um, uh, uh, it, It's a good cast uh, with several people who are good with the Yiddish. Some could use more work. Some uh, are new people who really dived into it. It's an unusual production in that it's a table and four chairs and uh, a, a backdrop of, uh, of a cityscape. Uh, the Times did not care for uh, these decorations, but that's yeah, just the I, I noticed that, one yeah. person, one person's opinion who uh, uh, who happens to work for the New York Times. Uh, a lot of other people have said hey, they love it. Uh, Jerry Teacher uh, liked it. Huh? Yeah, yeah, and uh, um, you know it's interesting uh, 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 for the second generation of. of for, for the second generation people, uh, it's it's been quite moving. I, I think you know the people who grew up in such a home where the parents spoke Yiddish. Here, the kids speak more Yiddish than I think they would if we had done it a certain way. But uh, you know, the kids speak Yiddish, they speak English, they uh, yeah, whatever. It's been very moving for them. Mm. I agree to a certain extent with some of the criticisms that say that the script doesn't gain so much by being put into Yiddish. I mean, Bulov's Yiddish is very simple. He was known for uh, uh, simplifying things, taking out the Lushen Koydish words. So you're using Lushen Koydish sticker words? Yes, we are. And uh, it was really uh, funny getting hold of it, you know, how it's locked away there at Harvard and they, you know, don't give it out so easily until we discovered that it belonged to the Miller estate, you know, it wound up being a retro-authorized translation. So, oh, wow. Can, can you tell uh, me more about that? I have no idea. I didn't know that there was a, just a translation sitting in a drawer that you guys got a hold of. Yeah, actually, there are two translations sitting in a drawer. Drawers. Uh, not my drawers. but uh, Fancy Harvard drawers. Uh, you know, yes, with lace. Full of Harvard beads, um, yes. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, well, it, it's like this. Uh, Bulov himself translated it uh, almost immediately upon seeing a Broadway production. They got hold of a script, which I presume was for sale at the time. And Bulov translated it, and he put it up in Argentina with a set that was identical to the New York set, with lighting that as closely approximated the New York lighting as it could, except it was in Yiddish. Now, to the Argentinians, this made no difference because they'd have understood it just as well had it been in English. So yeah, it's it was like fine. The Spanish and Dracula, it... yeah. <laughs> Do you know the Spanish Dracula? Yeah, yeah. And uh, TC, TCM is re-releasing it too. Uh, <laughs> it, it's like totally um, bizarre. But you know, they took a lot. You know, they 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 would shoot a scene in English and then switch actors over. They're using the same sets oh, and everything. Like those Laurel and Hardy movies with. Uh, Sometimes, the- yeah. There, were, I mean, there were a bunch of those movies that were done like that, uh, where, where they would shoot multi-language versions. Huh. But yeah, um, so so, so yeah. it became a, a hit in Argentina. It inspired them to produce it in Spanish. There, the first, so it was done in Argentine and Yiddish before in Spanish. Uh, then Bulov came back to New York with the rave reviews in in I guess Yiddish. And Spanish, and I don't know how Miller and his people understood that, 
But they said, oh, it, it's done well. So he gave Buloff almost unrestricted rights to produce the play. Hmm. And uh, the, the, the Miller took over the ownership of the translation with Buloff having the rights to produce produce it anywhere outside of Manhattan. And it's a very difficult play to get rights to produce, if you, if you didn't know. Uh, uh, so that was, that was highly unusual. Now, meantime, there was a translation of it into Yiddish, printed in Yiddish Kultur, the, the, the link, the Kommunist, uh, the Nachman Weisel and Ditcher Goldberg's magazine, by Jacob Mestel who was a very good writer and actor, and, uh, 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 and that, to my knowledge, has never been produced, and I'd be curious to see, uh, you know, to compare the two. Has anyone seen it? Which hasn't been like, has, has anyone seen the, uh, the translation? Like, yes, you know, uh, David, David had the whole thing copied off uh, from Yiddish Kultur, from old numbers of it, but ah. he really wanted the Bulov version. He, he read... He started reading it. He said it's a word-for-word -word translation, which he, I, I don't know. I guess he thought Bulov's would be different. Bulov's is adapted to a certain degree, like lines are moved around, some things are changed. Instead of, uh, uh, and now no one will come to the house, and in, in the last speech of Linda's there in the Requiem, it says, which is, you know, uh, more Yiddish than, the, the, yeah. you know, the, the, the duplication of... Things. Yeah, I should translate anyway, for Eric. Eric doesn't speak Yiddish, so should, mm. should, uh, I, I like the sound uh, of it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and now, it's lonely and now the house stands. Yeah. Yeah. Lonely and abandoned. Uh, instead of nobody's going to come. Yeah, that does sound more Yiddish. Uh, yeah. Now, the, the actors didn't like some of these changes and went back and retro uh, uh, translated some of it to fit closer to Miller's text, um, which I guess that was allowed to be their individual choice. I, you know, I feel like it, uh, that whatever the little changes Bulov made, it actually uh, made it a little more Yiddish loch. Mm -hmm. yeah. but, uh, but it's a style of speaking that, that people are not used to anymore either, especially in the I would say in the secular Yiddish community, you know, uh, that kind of, the, you know, the, the immigrants, they, they spoke Yiddish, but uh, yeah. the, the people who've learned it, you know, unless they really went into it to a certain degree, you know, they're at the, the speaking up to a comma level as opposed to having things sing and letting Yiddish be. I had a professor who argued that the basic unit in Yiddish is a sentence or a zatz, a clause, and not an individual word. And... As uh, uh, American actors of the current generation, people are caught up in underscoring each individual word in a certain way, as opposed to, I don't know if you can speak about that kind of thing or not, Michael, the, but, you know, the duplications in Yiddish, I think. Uh, well, yeah, Yiddish, in a, a literal translation of any properly written piece of Yiddish or any natural Yiddish conversations. They're spoken by native speakers for whom it's a primary language is going to look horribly redundant in English. Uh, things get repeated all the time. Uh, you know, this is when I used to translate more. Uh, one of the things I would always have to negotiate was if you're going to pay by the word, which word are we paying? For? <laughs> are we paying for Yiddish words or are we paying for English words? 
because five Yiddish words can come out as one English word. Uh, and again, you'll repeat names, pronouns, stuff like that, that you just, anybody translating it into English would simply leave out. Uh, anybody with the command of the language. Because you, you don't need it. Yet in Yiddish, you could get away with it grammatically without having it in there. But it doesn't sound natural. It doesn't flow. Uh, and, you know, you, you hear that kind of Yiddish where it's, everything's correct and it just, uh, you know, well, as everybody used to criticize the, the Klausprach for, you know, it lacks a certain tom, uh, uh, a taste, you know. It, it, it's not Hamish. It's, it's right, but it sounds like you learned it in a laboratory. Uh, <laughs> and there, there's a lot of that. And people, I think a lot of people who've learned Yiddish, even who have learned it well in school, have never quite twigged to the idea that each language has its own aesthetic. And that, that has to be translated as well. And, you know, they will sometimes, you know, what do I need all of this crap for? You know, and again, you were saying, like I said, I haven't seen, uh, I haven't seen the production, I haven't read the translation. But, you know, Buloff taking out, like, Hebraisms and fancy words. Uh, you know, this is another thing that's kind of split off secular Yiddish, which tends more and more to be a language learned outside of the home in school. Uh, that splits that off from, uh, I guess now for all intents and purposes, it's Hasidic Yiddish, it's Hasidic Yiddish, but it used to be just, you know, the traditional, you know, the language that immigrants spoke was the disappearance of so much of that. Uh, I forget if I mentioned this last week, but I mean, Shane wasn't, wasn't on the call anyway, but I was in Australia over the summer and I was giving a lecture, which, you know, I will be giving much of the same lecture next week in New York uh, and talking about, you know, uh, Yiddish's connection to religious tradition. And I was talking about toilet paper and saying, you know, it's called Asher Yutzer Papier. And, you know, in the dictionary, they give toilet papier and closet papier. And I said, I've never heard anybody say these. I've seen them in the dictionary, but I've never actually heard them come out of anybody's mouth. And it's, this was uh, for a group, you know, Kadima, the Shalom Aleichem School in Melbourne, which is, you know, these people know Yiddish, but they're very secular. Uh, not one of them had ever heard the term Asher Yotzer Papier before they all said Closet Papier. Uh, and I had never heard it. I had never heard anybody say it. And they didn't know what I was They didn't, no, they knew none of this. They also, they didn't recognize, I mean, well, what happens if you go in a fruit market and, uh, you know, tangerines and pears, you know, fruits that used to come wrapped in, there still do come wrapped in tissue paper or vish papier, as we say in Jewish. I mean, there you've got it. It's vish papier, wiping paper. Uh, what are you wishing? Yeah, no, but people would ask you, you know, uh, if you went and bought them and you were dealing with a Yiddish-speaking fruit guy, 
you know, they'd ask if you wanted them to, to keep the Asher Yutzerlach on the, on the fruit or take them off, which also, you know, you know where they got toilet paper from in the old country. Uh, and nobody, nobody knew this. Michael, I'm, I understand half of what you just said, and the rest I'm dying to interrupt so I can find out what you're talking about. So there's a there's Tell words about going to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that's why I'm so excited. Words, yeah, different ways of saying toilet paper in Yiddish. And the to and the me, one and the one the, that all the kids that you just met in Australia are kids. I'm sorry. These weren't kids. Yeah. These were people my age. Obviously, uh, I don't know why I keep uh, assuming youth. Yeah, yeah. They, well, in the Yiddish world, they are youth. Secular Yiddish schools. Uh, so those guys were learning a formal sort of word for toilet paper, and what was it? No, they they all spoke Yiddish quite well. I mean, there were a couple of people there that if you heard them speaking Yiddish, you'd be surprised that they spoke English with, you know, native Australian fluency. Hmm. Like their Yiddish is that good. Uh, the, you know, these are not people that learned Yiddish solely in school. These are people from uh, – there's a very big uh, – refugee holocaust survivor community in australia okay and in melbourne at any rate they're almost all from poland i mean i I really loved it there because this kind of stuff that i was just talking about with the toilet paper aside they all speak the same kind of yiddish that i spoke at home like this this kind of central polish warsaw yiddish which meant that i could actually speak dialect to these people which i almost never talk anymore because people just look at you funny. Hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's like every sentence started with ins. You know, every sentence starts with us. Ins guy and me. Yeah, yeah. yeah or, or, and it gets faster, you know. Ins <laughs> It's I, I don't know yeah. how anybody that, you know, learns to understand that because no word ever gets pronounced. But, uh, no, these guys actually knew it, but there's been such a split in the secular and, say, more traditional worlds that they weren't taught. So, like, for me, the standard word for toilet paper, and what I thought, you know, it's certainly what I've heard and seen, uh, is called Asher Yutzel Papir. This means literally the paper of he who has created. And the he who has created is a reference to the bruch, to the blessing that you say after you go to the bathroom. Uh Uh-huh. And there really is there really is such a thing. Right, the, the one where you thank God that your tubes still work. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, and you know that's which incidentally, incidentally, I uh, I was talking to a friend about that one time, and the the wording of the actual thing put into English, I thought was quite amusing. And he said, "Laugh, laugh. You'll laugh until you have problems, and right. then you'll then you'll give a blessing every time you're successful." So. Well, that's, yeah, and that's, you know, that's the, I guess that, that that's the idea that the, that the brook and that the blessing is operating on. <laughs> is, yeah. uh, you know, it's, as, as I said somewhere once, you know, it's apocalyptic. It's, you know, every time you go, the fact that it all works. You know, I, I worked many years in a hospital, in a kid's hospital, uh, doing uh, research, and... What I came away with after, you know, only having been there three months was the fact that any baby is born healthy is such an amazing miracle of beating all odds. Like the number of possible things that can go wrong is is just staggering. And the longer I worked there, the more I 
learned, uh, you know, the more amazed I was that every kid on earth wasn't in this hospital. Uh, so yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a point of view that's got some, some validity to it. So there, so, so there was the word that, that, uh, so yeah. that's what I would have called it. These guys in Australia called it closet papier. Closet is, you know, like in water closet. Kind water of closet. closet. Uh, WC paper or something, you know, it's Fields, his less successful brother. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> Uh, I had never, like I'd seen this in, a, in the dictionary, in the, the English Yiddish dictionary, but I'd never heard anybody use it. And I'm pretty sure I'd never run, I might have run across it in newspapers and, it, you know, it just didn't register. But certainly in literature, I had never seen it. And when I mentioned it, these guys all had the, the opposite experience for mine, for me. They knew Closet Papier. They didn't know Asher Yutzer Papier. They didn't, but unlike me, I knew what Closet Papier was, even though I wouldn't use the term. They didn't know what I was talking about. Huh. And Which, if, you know, you talk about, and I this can, is, you know, talk about a fundamental issue. Uh, yeah, we were, and what was the misunderstanding? It's like speaking two separate languages. Yeah, we, had a, there, we were it's, talking about a misunderstanding that wasn't about toilet paper, and that's why this came up. Mm. Oh yeah, the the translation. It's a, well, it's it's not a, a a misunderstanding per se. Well, the translation we basically set everything about. But it's interesting, you know, as Michael says, they spoke the same dialect of Yiddish, but over this word, and there are probably a number of other words that that, that there would be a similar case. There was this one difference, and this shows a difference between the secular education system for Yiddish as it was set up in Europe and then continued or not continued in, in say, Australia and in America, well, uh, I think, and, and in uh, Canada as well, uh, uh, as opposed to kind of just the, the natural education. I mean, the, the, the Yiddish educational system with Yiddish as a, as a language of study was really set up by people who were not religious mm. for the most part. Well, we're uh, sort of reacting against it too. Like they, they had an animus yeah, yeah. against. Uh, like, and it was it was an animus. You know, I probably would have had the same animus against. They wanted to spare their kids from the horrors that that were inflicted on them. And it it creates a difficulty. I mean, that that basic thing, right there shows a great difficulty in the understanding of Yiddish literature for people today, you know, whether they're reading it in English or in Yiddish, without that basic, you know, basic, I don't know if it's, if it's so basic, but without that worldview close at hand, the religious worldview, it's much harder to understand a lot of what, not just vocabulary, but, but, but what can happen in Yiddish literature, and especially in a writer like Bashevis, who grew up with that uh, worldview. So many of the Yiddish writers, uh, you know, whether, whether they were writing histories of the Bund and they, and they had no interest in the religion, they at least had that background. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would agree with that 100%. Uh, and they still use the terminology, many of them. Yes, yeah. Uh, in the same way that, you know, if you trace a lot of English words back to their origins, 
you know, many words, simple words like sign your name or simple phrases, you know, all of that stuff. These things once had a religious significance and it's just fallen away completely. It just becomes the word for performing that action or something. Nobody thinks of the term crisscross as referring to, you know, the cross from the crucifixion. Uh, you know, when you sign, you know, signing your name no longer has anything to do with making the sign of the cross. Uh, stuff like that has just, you know, it, it it's lost it. And that's kind of what these guys were originally aiming for, hmm. was, you know, they, they weren't out so much to replace the terminology as just to normalize it. And I mean, to a degree, it was normalized anyway. I think if you had a less highly self-conscious speaker, uh, you know, particularly people that weren't terribly well-educated, which was most of them, that's just what you called stuff. You know, there are a million, you know, there's certain jokes that circulate all the time amongst even native speakers of people, and it's always an old lady asking, you know, so who is this Moshe in all the Moshe's Akanums? Uh <laughs> An old age home, Eric, in Yiddish is called Moishev Zikainum, mm -hmm. which means uh, basically a, a place where old people live, a settlement of elders, uh, or session of elders, actually, in its proper context in the Psalms. But it sounds very much like Moishev. The name. The only other time the word Moishev comes up in Yiddish is in uh, Polish dialect, where it means uh, a dump, like... Like a house that's a dump, you know, not looked after properly. Like I walked in and it was a horrible mess. Or you've made a terrible mess, you know. You it's gemacht a moishe from the ganz of steep. You you've made the whole, you know, you've messed up the whole friggin' house. Uh, so people, you know, it wasn't one of those Hebrew words that people knew outside of a, a fixed phrase. So they misunderstood it the same way people do. You know, you, you get people saying, you know, for all intensive purposes, instead of for all intensive purposes. Right. You know, people reinterpret, you know, interpret things backwards to fit with what they already know. So people didn't know Moishe. To them, it sounds just like Moishe. So who is this famous Moishe Zikainim that they're naming all the places for? Uh, and I mean, I, I must have heard that joke a thousand times. You know, it stopped being funny after after the first one, but... It's, you know, that that's the kind of... And then you started thing. telling it. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, Shulam Aleichem, a lot of his stuff is founded on this kind of thing. On a very complicated playing with that kind of ignorance on the part of a narrator, like in the Tevye stories, where, you know, a lot of people think he's really that dumb, and a lot of people uh, think, no, he knows what these Hebrew terms really mean. He's pretending he doesn't in order to make another point, which I, I think is the, the correct version, because he knows too many Hebrew terms uh, to have no idea what he's talking about. But, you know, that whole kind of Yiddish humor, that whole kind of Yiddish, uh, and this is something that, you know, was inherited into Jewish show business, the, the love of wordplay. Uh -huh. uh, you know, that's very, very big in Yiddish. And people, you know, regular people do it all the time. 
And a lot of it comes from this kind of thing. And a lot of that ultimately goes back to the traditional school system, where what you did was, you know, you got a passage from the Bible, and you would recite a few words of the Hebrew, you'd recite like a phrase or a clause, and then you translate it immediately into, into Yiddish. So there was this back and forth going on all the time. A chibur, yes? Pardon, I, d- I didn't hear it. Is the, is the term for the running translation a chibur? No, a chibur no. is, that's a written running translation. That was, uh, uh-huh. uh, as far as I know. No, this is just fartaichen. You, yeah. you would fartaich the pusik. Uh out of Hebrew and into Yiddish. So you get, you know, I mean, people forget that, you know, the best-known Yiddish phrase of all time is, in fact, a school phrase that, I mean, probably came into the language independently of that. But, you know, if you look in the Hebrew Bible, you can find the word oi any number of times. Hmm. That's how old it is. It's, it's not originally a Yiddish word. It's a Hebrew word, if it's not just simple universal onomatopoeia. Right. So, what is the Yiddish translation of "oi"? Is "ve"? Huh. Uh, you know, in the exclamatory sense. And you said I don't speak Yiddish. You see, and I was wrong. I lied once again <laughs> on the Jews and their lies. <sighs> uh, it's almost Martin Martin Luther's birthday's coming up. Huh? Hey. Uh, <laughs> So, I think it's the 500th anniversary of uh, of the Reformation. Uh, it might be. I know it's well coming up is the 500th anniversary of the of the Venice Ghetto because Frank's been hired to write music for us. <laughs> uh, Happy. Hey, Sh- hey, Shane. Yeah. Uh, what book would you like to read in our book club? <clears throat> well, uh, there's a good. I thought that we had settled on Yentl. Yeah. I don't mind Yentl. I'll be frank. Uh, uh, I wouldn't mind uh, something that I've been working on and kind of teaching. But uh, but any Bashevis is fine. Uh, th- there's this the last demon Misa Tishovitz, which I've been working oh. on with people that yeah. I'd love to go oh. over sure. with uh, with Michael and Faith. You know, yeah. a, a capable. Yeah. Librarian yeah, that's actually and a, in, yeah, and I, I have a, a religious book. education. Um, this story, I think, has in it one of yeah, it's, it's got the best. Yeah. It, it's got a moment where he weaves into it uh, such an elegant use of the uh, of Talmud that that and it's at the top of the story. I mean, just talking to Michael. Uh, the st- on one foot, the story begins, a demon is sent from Lublin uh, out to a small town, and we could go into which small town and why, but into a small town to uh, uh, capture some souls there, to, to mislead some people. And he gets to the small town, and it's, it's, it's really a small town. It's the sticks. And he says, oh my, you know, what am I going to do? And he sits down on this stone. He can't find any other demons to, you know, tell him what's up, where, what the story is with the place. So he sits down, and he's under the, uh, uh, 
Uh, no, I believe he sits down in the in the in the bathhouse, yeah, in the in the in the bod. He sits down because this is a place where you might find demons, and uh, he sits down there. And there's a spider with so old and empty. There's a spider web above his head. He's sitting there. He says, "What shall I do?" And uh, from the spider web, there comes this uh, voice. With with uh, uh, basically uh, a lion is not satisfied with a morsel nor a pit with the dirt of its own walls, which is a quote from Talmud from from Brochus. and uh, he looks up and is ah he laughs. It's another little demon. The spider is a demon disguised, and uh, so they go into a conversation about uh, uh, the the rov there in town, how they can mislead him. Well, if you read around, I think that's three B in 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 Brochus. But if yeah. you read around right. that, it comes in a discussion of when one says certain prayers and uh, uh, why and can they be shortened and how did King David know to get up in the middle of the night uh, whenever I think the first of the second watch was because he had a harp above his bed that would uh, uh, sing out a kind of alarm clock, right? Except it's yeah, the it's Aeolian, Aeolian harp. harp. Yeah. Now, what is a spider web above this uh, demon's head like? Huh? A little bit like a harp. He's building. He's building that picture from right around. I think it's kind of brilliant. I mean, just as 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 a way to tie literature together. And uh, oh yeah, well this. I feel yeah, no, like I'd love to do. I that, feel so. like there must be things like that. I discovered that by accident because I was looking up the the citation. I read around it. So there must be other things like this in Bashevis. I don't think he did this one thing completely by accident. And. No, I mean, uh, <clears throat> That stuff is just so fundamental to the aesthetic of the whole liturgy. And I was in, about 15 years ago, I was in London at uh, one of those Clouse Fest things. And there's a woman there giving a class. Uh, you know, she's also, she's somebody who has learned Yiddish uh, and is fairly active and in all of that. And she's giving a class on a Sutzkever poem that she completely misinterpreted because she wasn't aware of the, you know, there's this well-known story about, uh, you know, Moses when he's uh, floating down, you know, as a baby, in in the uh, in, in the basket. What do you call it? You know, it's like an ark. But uh, yeah. she didn't know the medrash. She didn't know the midrash. She totally missed the point of the story of the of the poem. But. There was nobody in the class, you know, again, when I pointed this out and I was like very, you know, I don't like going to other people's classes and making them look bad. Of, <laughs> but it was like, this is, you're not getting it. So I said, well, it's possible that he might have been thinking of this other thing. And fortunately, there, there was a woman in the class uh, who then, you know, she'd come from a religious family. She, you know, she was also from England, but... He said, oh, yeah, I went to a base Yaakov school, and that was the first thing I thought of when I read this. Uh, so we were able, you know, to, to at least get the idea out there. But, yeah, this kind of stuff is, is fundamental. And a lot of those guys knew an awful lot. And I think, of, you know, so much of it was just, you know, second nature to them. You know, in the same way that we might fall back on stuff from movies or television. Uh, yeah, Star Wars stuff, references. Yeah, I mean, this stuff was just pounded into you. Uh, you know, 12 hours a day, 10, 12 hours a day, even if you left at 16, 
you could still have, you know, uh, a pretty solid education, at least in some areas of the Talmud and stuff. You know, you might not know it all, but you'd know a lot, and you would certainly know a lot enough to be able to deal with any unfamiliar parts on your own. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mean, we could switch to Massachusetts if you want. I have no uh, particularly strong uh, commitment to Yentl. Let's do both. But okay, well, we'll do Yentl, Yentl, we, should, we should let Faith know Yentl because she's planning to. To, to photocopy right. well, the my, stories this weekend. My Satishevitz, I can. My Satishevitz, I believe I've got scans of both the Yiddish and the English that we can uh, uh, use. Oh, great. I've, I've but, got a copy uh, of the I'll be frank, much as I'd love to discuss it and hope that we will sooner or later, Yentl might be a better lead in simply because of the name recognition. Yeah, well, that, that, that's kind of what I was thinking of when, when I when I broached the when idea. When you suggested. Uh-huh. Yeah, that had a lot to do yeah. with it. It's just, here's something people know. We don't have to explain, you know, here's a lovely story in which, you know, this, this, and this <laughs> happens because everybody knows. You know, here's the movie that destroyed Barbara Streisand, you know. <laughs> you say everyone know. I, I, I don't know. You don't know the story of Yentl? Oh, you got, you got to see it? the movie. I, I, mean, I know. It's alleged to be one of the worst movies ever made. I've never seen it. Huh. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm aware and of... Nor I. I. I mean, I'm aware of the title. I know it exists. But uh, growing up in the mid-80s, I didn't, I didn't watch it. But that's when it was popular. Isn't that when, when it was made? Yeah, but uh, not, for, not for seven-year-olds. Oh, there's two schools of thought Which on Which is precisely who should be seeing it. <laughs> but I'll check it out. Yeah, I've actually... I Now, the you said there was a Yiddish version. And was that Yiddle, Mitten, Fiddle? What do you mean? No, no, there was a no, redone... No. There was a stage version of it done uh, by the Folksbeen in New York okay. well after the movie had starring come out. The, okay. Starring the Eleanor, who is not the Eleanor that's been trying to befriend you on Skype. Okay, good to know. I know I was I was given a chance to translate it, but my my work was rejected. Uh, really? I, well, well, you know, it's always the same shit with all the time. Is well, give me a sample, and then we'll see if it's any good. And right. So you know, I already I, I knew this game by this point, and I wasn't all that interested in uh, having to work with them. But I also, you know, can't afford to just throw work away. Uh, yeah. So uh, I, you know, got went to the actual story and basically turned the beginning oh. of it to a stage thing without particularly changing any. Like such Yiddish words as were there were, mo- you know, 90% singers, not mine. Uh-huh. And I That's a pretty to, problem. Yeah, I sent it to. And he just gets back to me. He goes, what is this shit? I mean, that's actually what he said. Like, like, uh, who was it? Uh, Robert Christgau or something. Uh, he said, what is this shit? Nobody's going to understand this crap. You're filling it up with all your yeshivish bullshit. This is before he got religion. Uh, and then I said, that's the story that ran in the foreword. <laughs> Where anybody could, you know, like the foreword... Uh, is the, you know, generic Yiddish paper. If you read a Yiddish paper, you probably read that one. It was aimed at 
everybody. Yeah. So it wasn't too highfalutin. It wasn't too, uh, you know, I mean, people used to make fun of the qual- the low quality of the forwards is Yiddish, which in some cases was deliberately low quality to make sure people understood. But I said, this ran in the forwards. It's a Yiddish theater. No, we've got to take all these terms out. Uh, and I'm going, well, you know, that's that's fine with me, but I'm not going to do it. And, you know, you'll, you'll hear from Singer in the morning. Uh, so I don't know who they eventually got to do it. I can oh. tell you uh, the further. It was Kobe wasn't. I can tell you the further. Yes, uh, they went to Kobe and he translated it, and then it wasn't still there. He translated, I think, directly from Leah Napolin's English text, English mm-hmm. dramatization of the story, and it still wasn't there. So I sat with Mina Byrne and we went through and and. Uh-huh. Uh, Reworked some of that, needless to say, not for money. Uh, and uh, and then I'm sure that the actors, once they got hold of it, changed it too. So what kind of Frankenstein that was, I can't say precisely. But yeah. uh, uh, that was that was the further story of of wow. the of the uh, Yiddish Yiddishification, Yiddish dramatization of Yentl. Yeah. Of of, of the and Yiddish- now you know. The rest, yeah, the, the rest of the rest of the, the Meister. <laughs> the rest and, of the Meister. Well, that, that, that's my, my, one of my favorite things in The Simpsons is like they've got the radio on. It's Paul Harvey. Anyway, and that little boy who nobody liked grew up to be Roy Cohn. <laughs> uh, I saw Paul Harvey once, like live and in person. You know, like giving a lecture. Really? Yeah, I was, oh God, it's early 70s. I was with a friend of mine. We had to go to the People's Church in, in Toronto where they, I mean, we walked in. I mean, there was no mistaking what we were, and we were playing it up, too. <laughs> uh, they were unbelievably, I mean, they were, like, practically showering us with, with, with rose petals. They were so friendly. Uh <laughs> And all of this, oh, are, are, is it okay? Uh, would, you like, uh, would you like a cookie? Can you have one? Uh, <laughs> Which incidentally was a communion wafer. Yeah. No, not, not, at the, not at the people's church it wasn't. These, this is heavy duty uh, um, coming, you know, uh, right wing, you know, uh, charismatic, uh, that uh-huh, kind of uh-huh. evangelical, like before it got big, when it was just, uh-huh. you know. It was the Christianity of, of the fringe. Uh, uh, but, no, yeah, it was, he was, God, we just about laughed ourselves silly. It was really hard sitting in there did, not to burst out. Did laughing. he plug Neutrogena hand cream? Neutrogena. Was no. Uh, he mostly was, I mean, the thing that had attracted us to it was it's Paul Harvey and hippies are on the agenda. He was going to be talking about hippies. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it was like this, you know, we have to go into the belly of the beast to find this out. Uh, so I, I don't know if you guys had a chance to listen to the, to the, to the Michael Faith interview. I, I haven't had a chance yet. Part, yeah. I didn't. I didn't. Okay. But um, I listened to it way too many times. I enjoyed every <laughs> single time. I might be the the primary audience of this podcast. And 
I the if the, you just access it from a lot of different computers, it will look like <laughs> we have. Uh huh. Um, so I really am still excited about Uncle Moses. Oh yeah, well, the Sholomash. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That that came up last week. Uh, Faith is interested. Uh-huh. And okay, it's fine with me. And with at least there is a translation. Uh, as we determined, only one by Isaac Goldberg, so it's like a really bad translator. Oh, that great translator of all things Yiddish. Uh, yeah, right. Well, that? it's up, but it's up online too. And I made you know, the. I oh, made, I made the joke, Shane. I made the it joke. It should be up against the wall. Yes. I made the <laughs> joke, but I'm actually quite serious that we could just devote the podcast to uh, Yiddish works that Isaac Goldberg is the sole translator of. Uh-huh. Well, Be- because well. I get I get to read something and I'll just read for plot, I'll just read for story, and then you guys get to read the the good does, version. Does and he then... have living descendants? <laughs> I'll get them on the podcast. No, it's then we could call it something like, you know, where Yiddish literature went to die. It's uh <laughs> I mean, he was so bad. Uh oh. You know, there was like some of those guys in the '30s and later. There, you know, there were a couple of fairly good translators. Yeah. Working, uh, you know, Maurice Samuel was okay. Uh, the Muirs, although they weren't translating directly from Yiddish, but they could at least write readable English. Uh, later on, Joseph Singer, I thought was was all right. Uh, he was I. J. Singer's son. Okay. Uh, I thought his stuff was actually pretty good. Uh, but you know, then there was Goldberg, who just like, and the Butwins, uh, the the horribly named Francis Butwin. Uh, I mean, this stuff was just. It was. Eric was talking last week about uh, some woman who apparently translated Dostoevsky in the thirties off the top of her head, and never actually like read any of it over after she like she did a page and just went on. Uh, and these were all published. Uh, wow. Yeah, no, we, I mean, that's, you know, it'd give it a nice postmodern ironic glow, uh, the podcast, that is. Uh, yeah, well, podcasts are nothing if not postmodern. I know, I'm growing a beard already. <laughs> but it's like, it's, it's not a religious beard, it's, it's, uh, it's a hipster beard, yeah. Right. I hope you. I hope you're growing a man bun at the same time. Oh, magical! Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I want to. I want to. You know, I want there to be a lumbersexual aspect to all. Of it. <laughs> so, well, that's that's in Polish Chevelder, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Very good. That was good. <laughs> That's, that comes well, next you year. were involved with that project. You were involved. Yeah, Eric was uh, was very much. Uh, Eric firstly suggested it. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, the whole crowdfunding uh, aspect of it. That, also, that's how we met. We're, we're uh, doing uh, this we're together. Back. Actually, yeah, that too. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that's how Eric and I first became. You know, first met each. Other. I mean, we've never actually met face to face, but. Uh, but it was it was his suggestion that triggered all of that, and 
Eric did all the technical work on it. I, I tracked down. Um, uh, oh gosh, now I'm forgetting Opatashu's name. Joseph. The, but the living Opatashu. Dan. 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 I tracked down Dan. I used yeah. my I used my radio reporter skills to get him on the line. <laughs> uh, that was that was kind of my main accomplishment. The, the nice. thing I like about Dan is he can remember he can remember as a small child going to his grandparents and Yosef Opatoshu, one of the great one of the great Yiddish writers, sitting with his grandson on his knee, reading him comic books. And translating them into Yiddish, right? As they as they went along, because he wanted his grandson to hear Yiddish, but yeah. the the grandson only wanted comic books. So Scrooge McDuck and Superman in Yiddish. <laughs> so the, uh-huh. These translations are probably lost for all time. Unfortunately, right? Because no one had <laughs> iPhones yet. When when I first started going to Germany, I learned, and I you know I spoke German only insofar as you know. I spoke Yiddish. Like, I, I didn't know German properly at all. And it turned, it was becoming sort of a problem because you couldn't always communicate with people. But I started reading comics, the, you know, kids' comics, and watching television, uh, particularly The Simpsons, because I'd seen every episode. Mm. So I already yeah. knew what they were saying. Uh, and then, of course, you know, it's The Simpsons, it's fairly colloquial. And stuff, but yeah, you can learn an immense amount from those kinds of things. There's, there's uh, there, something. Yeah. Something tells me that there must be a Yiddish Superman out there somewhere. Uh, I wouldn't think so. I mean, there I were. You guys would know more than me. Lubavitch used to do. Uh, they had a comic, but it was in English, uh, called Mendy and the Golem, which was actually better than you would think it would be. Uh, the, the guy who was writing it was not uh, particularly Lubavitcher. I think they hired him or something. Uh, it was some bizarre story. But Mending the Golem was actually not bad. Uh, but, it, but it was in English. I don't think there was... You know, like, published as separate books, I don't think there were Yiddish comic books. Yeah. There's just nobody who would have read them. No kid wanted that stuff. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have looked at a Yiddish comic book, like, you know, voluntarily. I wouldn't have gone into a store and bought one. Uh, you know, you, you would have had to threaten my life, seriously. Uh, you know, I wasn't just not interested, but who the fuck buys the Yiddish papers? You know, if you went in and you bought a Yiddish paper and you were nine years old, they figure you're buying it for your grandparents or maybe your parents. You know, no kid, kids had access to this, but they didn't, they didn't want it. I mean, I had no real interest in any of this stuff. Uh, and I'm sure that, you know, I know from talking to other people from similar home backgrounds that that was pretty much universal. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. When did you get an interest then in reading it? Uh, I mean, I got, like, I used it all the time. You know, it's not like I was... Uh, the fact that I was I wasn't removed from it, but it was you know it was for certain people or certain locations. Uh, you know there were times I would talk to other kids in Yiddish, uh, either at school where we had no fucking choice, 
uh, or out of school if we didn't want people to understand us. Uh, or later when we started, uh, well, I guess that, that actually falls into don't want people to understand you, but uh, I didn't pursue it. You know, I can remember once, you know, my mother who was uh, relatively open to the outside world, uh, having come before the war, I was about 16, uh, 15 or 16, and Menashe Skolnik was coming to Toronto. We were living here already. And, you know, like he was in a show. And she actually said to me, she said, you should go to see this because this will be your only chance to see something like this. And I knew who Menashe Skolnik was. And it was just like, why do I want to see this? You know, I want to see, you know, I, I, I want to see Jimi Hendrix and The Doors. Uh, I do not want to see Menasha Skolnick. And, you know, I, like I deliberately didn't go. And, you know, a number of years later, I was kicking myself for it. But I had, you know, I, I read the papers and stuff. And if there were books around the house, I would read them. And I, I had a fairly... And I, like I was saying last week, I made a lot of pocket money. I used to read the papers to older people who had trouble seeing and stuff. So, you know, I had in that sense, I guess, read a reasonable amount. But all the way through to read like some classic work of Yiddish literature, I probably read three or four before I got interested. I read the ones my mother liked. Yeah. Because she would habitually reread certain books. Like uh, what? Ashkenazi, The Brothers Ashkenazi. Oh. I.J. Uh, Singer, and also Yasha Kal. Right. That likewise was, by I.J. Singer. That, that, as far as I can remember, was the first uh, book I thought maybe we should do. Yasha yeah. Kal. What, yeah. You know, I, think, uh, I would be very curious to to go through that with you. It's interesting to me that that book is such a pot boiler. To me, in a way, it's it shows it answers the argument that I.J. Singer, the, all the old Yiddishisten used to say, "Oh, I.J. Singer, he's actually the better writer." It's great, but it doesn't read the level that I think Bashevis eventually reached with his writing, maybe simply because he kept writing for a longer time and could experiment more. But it's a it's a pretty incredible read. I mean, it's uh, yeah, yeah. I, I used to love it. I mean, I, I, I imagine I still do. It's a few years since I last read it, but uh, I mean, um, and if you've read it numerous times, that's uh, that, that might be something of. very interesting to 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 go over at a certain point. The the it's it's the one that saved the Yiddish art theater in New yeah. York. Morris yeah, Schwartz was, was like. Ready to close the company, and and uh, and they played the Bridrash Kanazi, which was a huge, smashing success, and it kept it kept that theater alive for another, you know. The, the, well, also the play, the, the play version of Yosha Kal, uh, which is sorry, that's what I, I that's what I mean. That's what I mean. Yosha Kal, not the Bridrash Kanazi. Yosha Kal. I mean, I would think of the Bridrash Kanazi as more of a pot boiler, although it's you know. The, the, the 700 page family saga. Yeah. Right. But it was pretty. As far as 700 page family sagas in Yiddish go, uh, it's my favorite. <laughs> I, I have always found uh, the Mishpucha Mash, uh, Mashper by the Venice, by they're impenetrable. It's I tough. never got past page 20, and I've tried numerous times 
and I still haven't found a concrete noun. It's a. Uh, this is this is this he's is why so he's fucking done atmospheric. This. I don't know what he's talking about. Uh, this is why he's done this to the hidden one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, Yashikalb would be great to, to to read with you, and uh, and that th- that's what I was referring to. The Bridarash Kanazi, I really like. It's a it's a good story and all that. But uh, I mean, the story of the brothers is fun. But then he's got those huge chapters that cover uh, over you know uh, overview huge historical canvases yeah, well, yeah. of history of Lord. 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 That bore the hell of bore the hell bore the bore me to hell. I have, yeah, have well, to say that's of course. Um, that's, that's the perils of writing, you know, serialized stuff for, you know, payment by the word. Uh, <laughs> it's like the parts uh, of Moby Dick where they go into the... No, that's the important stuff. That's the, that's the best part of Moby Dick. <laughs> All right, I'll go back. I, I nah, but but he, wasn't, he wasn't publishing Moby Dick. It wasn't serialized. Oh, okay. Uh, it was a horrible failure, too. I mean, it basically ended Melville's career. <laughs> Maybe this podcast is gate, yeah. Maybe this podcast will do the same for you. We'll see. I we got to uh, end my career. You can't end, you know, you can't kill a corpse. <laughs> you can try. I can reanimate one, however. <laughs> they said I was mad. <laughs> and that's it. That's how the conversation concluded. We didn't even get a chance to say goodbye. Skype cut us off right then and there at the appropriate moment, in fact. So what did you just listen to? Did you fall asleep in front of the computer again? Uh, you just listened to a pre-production conversation of a forthcoming podcast called Yiddish Book Club. Perhaps that podcast has already been launched, and if you listened to this whole hour, then clearly you're the type of person that might enjoy uh, listening to that much more formal conversation in which we're going to read works of Yiddish literature uh, together and then talk about them on the show. So uh, if you're listening and it's it's late 2015, it's clearly not too late for you to uh, to read I.B. Singer's short story, Yentl the Yeshiva Boy, and, and join our conversation about it. Uh, listen to the podcast and uh, go on the social medias and and talk about the, the story. Read it with your friend and talk about the story and then send me an email about what you and your friend talked about. Uh, all of our good things, all the things you can find out more about our project will be up on the website, um, yiddishbookclub.com. Thanks to Michael Wex. Thanks to Shane Baker. My name is Eric Klein. Thank you to Faith Jones, who is a part of the podcast but wasn't on this recording. Uh, thank you to, for listening. <laughs>